Hey fellow interior designers and design lovers, welcome to the Daniel House Book Club. Together we're reading and discussing the eight books every interior designer and design enthusiast should have read according to Architectural Digest. This is our final episode focused on Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman's The Decoration of Houses. For a complete reading schedule, please visit our website, danielhouse.club, and click on the Club Bulletin tab. While you're there, consider becoming a member. Daniel House Club is a powerful tool that helps interior designers do more of what they love and less of what they hate. I'm the club's chief creative officer, Peter Spaulding, and I'll be your host. We started our study of this book by identifying that one of its surprising threads was that of simplicity. Today we're looking at the book's final three parts, a chapter on the schoolroom and nurseries, which I'm imagining will feel slightly more relevant than it might have in the pre-pandemic era, a chapter titled Bric-a-Brac, which is a term that makes me think of the scenes on Portobello Road in the movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and the conclusion. I'll continue to address this issue of simplicity. In fact, the book ends with a collection of what read like proverbs on the subject. The supreme excellence is simplicity. A great draftsman represents with a few strokes what lesser artists can express only by a multiplicity of lines, and the tact of omission characterizes the master hand. I'm not sure if you all have a collection of short essays by more contemporary thinkers and design practitioners at the end of your copy like I do in mine, but in the one I have by William Cole, he says, This book might equally be called The Graces of Life, for its real subject is not just about houses, but the quality of life in them. Edith and Ogden are definitely not advocating for the simple life in the sense we think, but they are calling for unity not just in the composition of the home, but in one's life. Nowhere is this more evident than in today's chapters. For those of you just finding us, Daniel House Club is the place where the job of interior design is made simple. Our members have access to wholesale pricing, from over 75 great trade vendors. You can join as a free, pro, or pro plus member, depending on the level of discount that fits your needs, and shipping is always 10% of your order. Once you become a member, be sure to check out your dashboard, which allows you to create furniture schemes with your clients and convert those directly into bills upon approval. Visit danielhaas.club today and start spending less time and earning more money. And now, back to Peter. Strangely, or maybe not, the chapter on nurseries and that on bric-a-brac both address the issue of connoisseurship. I think little would offend Edith and Ogden more than the contemporary idea of a home makeover. For them, the development of a great home begins with an eye trained toward artistic excellence. And this is an eye that, even for people with an inherent interest in beauty, takes a lifetime to cultivate. I've been listening a lot lately to Architectural Digest's A.D. Aesthete, which was hosted by their decorative arts editor, Mitchell Owens. There was a great episode on Jane Reitzman, who I didn't really know that much about, but talk about cultivating connoisseurship. Actually, I did know the name Reitzman. It's the title of some of my favorite galleries at the Met, but one of my weaknesses is not always seeking context for the things I really enjoy. The Reitzman galleries are an amazing collection of French period rooms that are so complete, I just assumed they were always there. This is, of course, a ridiculous assumption to make, since clearly once, long before the Met existed, every piece in these rooms was somewhere in Europe. After listening to the episode on Jane Reitzman, I did some research and learned that before Jane met her oil magnate husband, Charles, she worked in a department store and her mother owned a bar in Los Angeles. After she married and became a major contributor to the arts, 
Her mother is said to have walked her neighborhood in bunny slippers, occasionally announcing, I am the mother of the Jane Reitzman. Now, this may be hyperbole meant to convey a rags-to-riches story, and by all accounts, Jane Reitzman was as dignified and sophisticated as they come, so dragging she and her mother through the mud, even if they have both passed, hardly seems kind. But the point I'm trying to make here is that where one begins has very little to do with their ability to cultivate within themselves a vast and discerning knowledge of the great objects of the world. Admittedly, it requires lots of time and exposure, and this cultivation, in the end, has relatively little to do with the objects and more to do with the whole worlds that existed to make them possible. When you learn about history, it becomes a part of you, and you see the world through a much bigger lens. The things you possess are no longer about you and what others think of you. They are a window into a time and a place that have informed the world you now occupy. If I'm getting really crazy, these windows help you remain calm when you read the morning news and you remember all the great and horrifying things that have happened before. Jane did not grow up in the world she died a leader of. She did not become a leader by having lots of expensive stuff and Instagramming about it. She became a leader by developing her mind and sharing it with as many people as she could. Looking from the outside in, her life was simple, in that she and her husband established for themselves a lens, and everything that they did and collected and contributed fell within that lens. If it fell outside the lens, there was no need to waste any time on it. Anyway, your origins play little into whether you can develop artistic knowledge or not. But Edith and Ogden believe it is best to begin cultivating awareness as early as possible, and we see that in their recommendations for the schoolroom and nursery. I actually am pretty sure that I had a professor who employed the very ideas they suggest here on my classmates and me. Call it brainwashing if you like, but the techniques were definitely effective. There's no mention of classical orders on the walls of the nursery, just this idea that kids can handle a lot more than we give them credit for. How can a child reading only rose-colored fairy tales with cute little illustrations become prepared for the gravity of a knight's tale, our authors ask? Because in a sense, you are what you eat. They argue that a child given a gift of value will be excited to possess something a grown-up has and will treat it with great care. I am not a parent, but I have met a lot of kids and was one once, and this seems a bit of a broad brush stroke to me. But then, I was not raised in a time when this sort of thinking was the norm, so I may not be seeing what Edith and Ogden saw. I can say that even as a kid, I loved houses. My dad traveled to Washington, D.C. a lot, and there was an old man who had a kiosk in the airport there, where he sold little houses he made from paper-thin pieces of wood. The houses were of real architectural style, and their roofs could be removed, exposing tiny, fabric-lined treasure boxes inside. When Dad came home from Washington, he usually brought a little house with him. I loved getting them. I would design their floor plans and tell myself stories about the people who lived in them and learn about the period of architecture they represented. Come to think of it, those little houses were probably made in China and exactly the sort of junk Edith and Ogden would have hated. Anyway, on to the brainwashing. They suggest that, with the help of the child's teacher, one could develop a rotating decorative plan for the nursery that coordinates with the lessons being taught. 
If the lessons were about ancient Rome, for instance, inexpensive prints and plaster casts depicting the art, architecture, and literary and political figures of the time could be hung and swapped out for the same imagery from France when the time comes for that study. The classroom I had where I said the professor was practicing these techniques on my classmates and me was filled with plaster casts of architectural elements that once hung in the huge entrance hall of the Met. In the midst of these incredible objects that spoke of disparate times throughout Western history, he pinned a computer-printed image of the inscription on the side of the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University in Rhode Island. It says, Speak to the past, and it shall teach thee. How bizarre, I thought, when he first pinned it up. Maybe the inscription was wrong. Surely it should say something like, Listen to the past, and it shall teach thee. Or maybe even, Let the past speak to you. For me to speak to the past implies that the past is still alive. It implies the possibility of a dialogue. It says, We can have a chat, and I can learn from you, and we can both move forward together with a new perspective. It's not fashionable to learn from history right now, and that sucks, because it's so filled with answers it's not even funny. Perhaps it's not the whole answer you need for today, but the building blocks are there. I think, if we want to criticize Edith and Ogden, we could say that they were a little too fixated on listening to the past and not talking back to it enough. But this is the norm for people in a society working to establish themselves as a torchbearer, as they were. In any case, they felt a child exposed to works of art, even if they didn't appreciate them directly, would inadvertently have their whole worldview expanded. If beauty wasn't their foremost concern, encouraging taste in a young person by having them select the art for their room would force them to engage in judging the merits of one object over another, which is a skill we all rely on in decision-making throughout our lives. As our homes are turned upside down to accommodate all sorts of activities now that previously took place in schools and office buildings, I do think we have a renewed opportunity to help young people see a bigger picture. With long lead times continuing to affect designers everywhere, we've implemented a bi-weekly in-stock email. Join DanielHouse.club and receive regular updates about our tens of thousands of products that are ready to ship immediately. Your clients rely on you to deliver on time. Let Daniel House Club help you surpass their expectations. Now, back to the show. And with this bigger picture, we grow up to be adults who have seen a lot and aren't fooled by junk. This brings us to Edith and Ogden's chapter on bric-a-brac, which is a chapter I would retitle for the contemporary audience as Insta-style, with the dual purpose of educating a client against falling into the trap of creating rooms that produce trendy pictures and learning that great things, more than requiring extra money, require more patience. We don't really have people posing as antiquities dealers anymore, as is written about in this book, because, as I recently heard the interior designer Alexa Hampton say in an interview, when you say the word antique, people practically throw up. For almost the last 20 years, great pieces of art and furniture Edith and Ogden would have treasured has been headed to the dump. It is stuff that, once gone, can likely never be replaced, because our contemporary expectation of time and cost makes its creation impossible. Happily, this terrible trend is changing fast, and all you need to do to know this is tune in to a live auction and watch as antique objects go for higher and higher prices. It used to be that a designer could stockpile great things and fill their clients' homes with them 
profitably. And if current lead times and shipping delays continue, we may find ourselves back there again. But now, with clients having the same access to stuff you do, what they don't understand is that they do not have your cultivated eye, and they will not be able to develop a set of their own overnight. For many of us, our greatest asset is our eye, and that is what we are selling. We can speed the process up, which Daniel House is here to help with. We can come in on budget, which we can also help with. But when people come to us and say, I want some beautiful rooms, what they really mean is, I want a beautiful life, and no amount of time and cost savings can provide that. Learning to see will provide that, and you can teach them to see. Or you can't. Beyond mere cultivation, which is no small feat, Edith and Ogden do have some practical advice for the collector. New collectors will tend to collect too much, and the scale of their objects will usually be wrong for the room they choose to put them in. A huge vase might have plenty of empty space behind it, but it might appear to be crushing the table it is sitting on. Too many objects makes it impossible to appreciate any one of them. Scale and quantity are the most important factors in collections of art objects. Where people forgive collections of furniture that are good, bad, and indifferent because these things are needed to sit on and set things on and read by, there is no reason to have bad art. It is not a necessity, but instead the crowning element of a room. So, like costume jewelry, it cries out if it is junk. In my own opinion, what constitutes junk in the world of art these days it w is what is mass-produced with no eye to the original production methods. If something originated as a print, that's, that means in its original state, it could have been made over and over again. So, there are many wonderful prints. What's not so good is a painting copied and digitally printed onto a canvas and then laid over with some sort of transparent goop that is meant to suggest real painting technique. Little tchotchkes that come from a catalog of other little tchotchkes aren't great either. Apart from the inferior quality of these things, there is the question of what the heck they mean to the person who owns them. Are they windows into another world? It's difficult to imagine how. There is something to be said for a room requiring a thing of a certain scale somewhere, or enough objects to feel inhabited, but Edith and Ogden say these things better add more value than the blank spaces they occupy. Apart from the proverbs of simplicity I mentioned at the beginning, Edith and Ogden conclude by saying something I think we'd still need to finish a similar book with today. Those attempting to set standards of house decoration are suspected of proclaiming individual preferences under the guise of general principles. But it is their unique, or at least pretty unusual, blend of authority and practical advice that makes the decoration of houses rise to the level of a classic. Even if they are exerting their own taste on their readers, they are providing the foundational knowledge for those readers to go out, examine the built world, and try creating it for themselves. In providing their marching orders as they did, I think they believed they were setting their readers free in the same way a financial advisor with obedient clients might set them up for a terrific life in retirement. Alex here. I just bought the Equo Desk Lamp by Concept for my office. I love it, and I get a lot of great comments on it. The Equo features a discreet counterweight design for the easiest adjustability. Equo's innovative design has won 11 international product design awards, including the renowned Red Dot Award. One finger is all you need to adjust the floating arm position, and you can control brightness and power by sliding your finger on the touch bar. If you or your clients are looking for a new desk lamp, 
This is it. Find it at DanielHouse.club in black, silver, orange, the one I chose, and chrome. Now, back to Peter. Before we leave Edith and Ogden behind, which will be hard to do since their permeation in our world is lasting, let's just look briefly at who they were outside the confines of the decoration of houses. A lot of people know at least something about Edith Wharton, so let's start with a lesser-known Ogden. He was born in Massachusetts in the 1860s, where he lived with his family until he was 12, before spending the next nine or ten years of his life in France. His grandfather inherited the house he grew up in from his uncle, who had no kids. It was built in 1740 for his father, Chambers Russell, who founded the town it occupied. All this is to say, by the time Ogden was born, his home had been in his family for over 120 years, and in this way would have felt something like the great country houses of Europe that get passed down and altered from generation to generation. It did not start as a huge house, but grew to be large and important to its community. The house remains intact today and is operated as a museum by Historic New England. I haven't been myself, but if you get the opportunity to go, I would love to hear back from you. In France, Ogden lived in the American and British resort town called Dinard. As always, please forgive my ability to pronounce anything in French. During this time, he was exposed to and fell in love with 16th, 17th, and 18th century French and Italian architecture. Two of his close relatives were in the profession of architecture and decoration, and when he returned to the States, he studied architecture at MIT, which apparently he did not enjoy. It seems also that he didn't enjoy working for other architects, and he began his own practice as early as 1891, both in Boston and in Newport, Rhode Island, which was then a major summer resort for important New Yorkers, including Edith Wharton. It was here that she hired him to turn her ugly house into something beautiful. She admired him for being an architect who treated the subject of decoration seriously. Together, they did transform her house to great effect, and through this experience decided to write the decoration of houses together. Later, Ogden said that he had written it almost entirely himself, and Edith just added polish. But we do know that her role was in fact a little bit bigger. She even credited her good friend, Walter Berry, with helping her revise the first draft into a clearer work. As an architect, Ogden did successfully complete over 20 houses, but critics always praise his interiors more highly. I have only experienced his own house at 7 East 96th Street in Manhattan, which is fantastic, so I cannot really elaborate on why his career as an architect didn't leave a greater impression. He did decorate for the very top echelon of his day, though. He did the interiors at the Rockefeller's house Kaikut in Westchester and the Vanderbilt's Newport house, the Breakers. I prefer the former, which is very quiet, restrained, and livable, and has a bizarre basement collection of tapestries copied from Picasso's paintings, which were commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller in the 1960s. Both houses are also open to the public and are very worth a visit. In his personal life, Ogden Codman is known to have been gay, despite marrying the widow of a railroad tycoon in 1904. When she died, only six years into their marriage, Ogden inherited her estate. He lived in New York for another ten years before returning to France for the last thirty years of his life. There, he bought the former estate of King Leopold II of Belgium, near Monaco.
he redesigned its collection of disjointed structures into a unified whole. Considered his masterwork, Villa Leopolda, as it is now called, was so expensive he could not afford to live there. Instead, he rented it to many important people, though when the former British king Edward VIII and his wife Wallace Simpson wanted to make changes that went against his aesthetic preferences, Ogden famously said, I regret that the House of Codman is unable to do business with the House of Windsor. You can imagine what he must have been like to work with. I say this partially rolling my eyes and partially admiring the strength of his conviction. We know a lot more about Edith Wharton. She was a hugely successful novelist in a time when it was considered inappropriate for women to be writers. In 1921, she became the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for her novel The Age of Innocence, a depiction of life in Gilded Age New York, which she was a part of starting in the 1860s. Born Edith Newbold Jones, her family made their money in real estate, and the phrase keeping up with the Joneses is thought to refer to them. She married Teddy Wharton from Boston when she was 23, and while they shared a love of travel, especially to Italy, Teddy never became the breadwinner, his mental health declined, and they eventually divorced. Her three loves were American houses, novels, and Italy. When World War I began, as many Americans moved home, Edith moved to her Paris apartment. Apart from visiting the front lines on more than one occasion, she set up workrooms for unemployed women, hostels for refugees, and raised over $100,000 on their behalf. Even though their relationship was strained from time to time, Edith and Ogden remained close friends. In fact, she died at his expensive French home while working on a revised edition of the Decoration of Houses. Even though many of her other works eclipsed this one in public popularity, it was from the decoration of houses that she received her first royalty check. I think it's safe to say Edith Wharton practiced the expansive view of life she preached. The art and architecture she loved really did reflect her aspirations. In her autobiography, A Backward Glance, she lamented the monstrous regiment of the emancipated, young women taught by their elders to despise the kitchen and the linen room and to substitute the acquiring of university degrees for the more complex art of living. I think it'd be a mistake to hear this and think Edith was advocating for women to stay in the kitchen. Instead, I think she was saying the standardized parameters instituted in order to educate the masses greatly reduced our ability to take in all there is to see and know in the world. To believe a university education is all there is to know, is to see learning as finite. She and all of her important accomplishments are proof that it is not. Join us next week as we move on to study a similarly pioneering woman, Elsie DeWolf, and her book, The House in Good Taste. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Daniel House Book Club. Again, please visit danielhouse.club and click on the Club Bulletin tab for a complete schedule of this season's readings. While you're there, consider becoming a club member. Apart from all the benefits you've already heard about, our members now also receive our quarterly print catalog, which features selected member projects, seasonal product curations, articles on managing a design business, and much more. Become a member and watch your design business thrive. Uh, 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 uh.